Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal. It was home to America's first law school and to one of the first schools in which a woman could get a real education. And Litchfield today is one of Connecticut's prettiest towns. I'm Walt Woodward. Join me on a field trip to the Litchfield Historical Society, where I talk with Executive Director Kathy Fields about her amazing institution and its two brand new exhibits, one on Sarah Pierce's Litchfield Female Academy and another on expressions of sorrow and mourning in the early 1800s. If you haven't been to Litchfield recently, this is the podcast that will get you in your car and on your way. Coming up next on Grading the Nutmeg. Well, you couldn't tell it by the temperature, but it's spring in Connecticut now. And that means that pretty soon, pretty soon, we will all be out enjoying spring and looking for the wonderful things that Connecticut has in abundance. And one of the things that we are blessed to have in this state are some absolutely amazing historical societies. And I am today at one of the very best. I'm in Litchfield at the Litchfield Historical Society. And even better than that, I'm with Kathy Fields, (laughs) who is the executive director. Hi, Kathy. How are you? Hi, Walt. I'm fine. And thank you so much for those kind words. Well, it's true. I've been here many times. And every time I come, I leave more excited than the last time. It's a great place. Thank you. I love it. Tell me about the background of the Historical Society and uh, how it got to be and, and what's here. So the we were founded in our first incarnation in um, before the Civil War, actually in about 1858. Seriously, seriously, by some gentlemen in town who decided that the the history of the community was important, but particularly we think the law school. So they started sort of gathering papers, and they would meet together and give talks. And it was you know it was a boys' club. Now, the law school is the Tapping Reef right, Law School, right? Me, the Litchfield Law School. There you go. Ta- yeah. That was run by Tapping Reef. Yeah. And um, so they did that up into the Civil War. And then after the Civil War, that, that kind of disbanded. And the organization existed but didn't didn't really exist until, as I say, the ladies got involved. And then in about 1897... You said that with a certain kind of smile. Well, you know, the, these, were, these were formidable ladies. <laughs> Not <laughs> unlike yourself, I well, might add. I, well, thank you. Um, they were descendants of the early families in town, and particularly um, descendants of Benjamin Talmadge, and they wanted to save really their history. So in the 1890s, they got together and started collecting, and I swear they went into every attic in town and told people what they were taking. And so the basis of our collection happened in the late 19th and early early 20th centuries. And well, and isn't it wonderful that they did? Because they did. you have a collection here that is deep and broad and amazing. And it's housed in this really neat building on the green in Litchfield, right? Uh, right on the green. You can't miss us. The building was actually built by one of the descendant of one of these ladies. And um, it is the it was built as the town library. 
in this was the this, town it was library. the town library in 1900 and in 1904 they put a little addition on the back and the historical society moved in with the library and then in the 1960s the library was looking to expand and we were given the Oliver Wolcott house, Oliver Wolcott Jr. house, which is down South Street, and we essentially traded with the library. And they took the Wolcott Jr. house and put an addition on it, and we took over this whole building. In this building, we have the History Museum and a research library that's fabulous and really, really rich. And then, we, of course, we also run the Tapping Reef House in Litchfield Law School, which I'm rebranding as America's First Law School. I'm going to start saying that first because that's really what it well, was. That's what it and was, right? And that's what's important. Tapping Reef's name is not as important as we were the first law school. Well, Tapping Reef was a pretty cool guy. He is a pretty cool guy, yeah. but nobody recognizes him. That's they true, will, but, but, they, we're, we're but everybody will recognize America's first law school. No right. question about it. So, But that's not in this building. No, it's off-site, right? It's across down, the street. Down the street. Yeah. So we have um, two different campuses. Now, before we talk about the exhibits you're about to open, highlight some of the things from the collection that someone coming here would see just on a normal day if, if these exhibits weren't there. What are, what are the standard kind of bread and butter highlights of the historical society? Well, actually, most of our galleries change, so um, there's always something new to see. But we have an amazing collection of paintings by the artist Ralph Earle. Actually, we have the largest single collection of his paintings. I think we have 13. But two of them particularly are really iconic, and many, many people actually come to see those. And those are the portraits of Benjamin Talmadge and his wife, Mary Floyd Talmadge. So Absolutely. The, Ralph Earl was the Revolutionary War painter and the early American right. Republic painter, at, at who those of us who study that era, uh, you know, much of what we know visually about the people comes from paintings by Ralph Earl. Right, and the, the Talmadges are on a grand scale. And so not only do we have them, but we have the chairs and the carpet and the clothing and everything that, as Walt was saying, everything that was part of, part of their world. But we, all, we have portraits of children um, by Earl. We have portraits of other Litchfield notaries. We have a landscape of Sharon, Connecticut. There's a Canfield house. And those, things, those paintings are, are pretty much always on display. Although uh, Mrs. You, Talmadge is being loaned to um, Long Island in the fall. I hope she's coming home soon. I, well, she's here now, but she's going away. Oh, well, are you going to have a party for her as she goes? Yes. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've we, got we some, love parties. You've got you, you've <laughs> got some you've got some great furniture here too, don't you? Right. So, oddly, Litchfield County was a center of um, early 19th century furniture making. We did a big exhibit a few years ago on Litchfield County furniture, and it has stylistic bits that um, that help us know that it's Litchfield County and some of that furniture is always is always on display as well. We try and rotate it around so people can see can And see it's the pieces. good stuff. It is it's you know, it's quirky. It's it's eighteenth and nineteenth century furniture, so it's Queen Anne and in Chippendale and the the way we think of furniture. But because we're sort of up in the country, there's there's a little bit of a quirkiness about some of it too, which makes it fun and quite beautiful and I'm very fond of it. Yeah, well, it's wonderful to see. And of course, across the street and down a little bit is America's first law school. I can say it with you. I can be taught. <laughs> Which was started by Tapping Reeve in 1774. So he was America's first law school teacher. He was. There you go. There you go. And he, um, he was actually trained as a teacher before he was trained as a lawyer. And he... Um, he was he taught the young children of 
well, Aaron Burr and his sister Sally when they were young. Right. And eventually married Sally and moved here to Litchfield. And I personally think, I can't prove this, he became a lawyer because it was a profession that was more acceptable to the Burr family than teaching. Now, when you said Aaron Burr, you and I both looked and we nodded our heads because we're history nerds <laughs> and we know Aaron Burr. But for, for people who could use a refresher, who was Aaron Burr? Well, have you seen Hamilton? Yeah, um, well, no. have you priced the tickets? <laughs> Aaron Burr was, um, he was the vice president of the United States, and he famously shot, right? There shot, you go, yep. He shot Alexander Hamilton. Sometimes I get the the, um, the, the who shot who mixed up, but in a, in a duel in Weehawken, New Jersey. And he also had a somewhat checkered career after that, where he was accused of trying to take Texas out of the Union and do, do a couple of odd... Yeah, that uh, Aaron Burr. That Aaron Burr. Yeah. Yeah. So he he was a he was a character, and he was Tapping Reed's brother-in-law. There you go. And and went to law school in America's first law in school. In America's first law school. Taught by Tapping Reed. Tapping Reed. There you go. One of two vice presidents who attended the law school. The other being one we most of us have heard of as well, John C. Calhoun. And when people, John C. Calhoun, of course, was the South Carolina senator who essentially led the South into secession. Yeah. yeah. And he was up here in Connecticut when, you know, when New England was thinking those thoughts. About secession, so yeah. We, we think he learned about secession from Tapping Reef. Yeah. We, again, that's, that's an important that either, but, it's but an another idea. story. Yeah. 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 But also, um, so we have two vice presidents, three Supreme Court justices. We have the first Supreme Court justice who attended law school. Um, uh, hundreds of members of Congress, 14 senators, 10% of the United States Congress in 1800 were graduates of the law school. That's amazing. And you, know, and I, you have the actual place, right? We have the actual place and the actual books that the students wrote. They took their notes in longhand and they bound them and they became the basis of their law libraries. But when you think about these guys, they were the first generation after the revolution. Their fathers fought and wrote the Constitution sometimes actually quite literally their fathers wrote the constitution and and these guys took it as their responsibility to make it work well they were the people who had to operationalize yeah. so the grand theories yeah. of their fathers yeah so, so it, you know and the stuff that they were thinking about and doing is pretty relevant to to today so it's a it's, it's a great it's a great story it's a really important place at a very important time, yeah. and you know, and how wonderful that it is part of and, your mission. And we're we're we have so much fun with it. We're working on a book um, that's going to be more of a sort of a guidebook, but of of, of a friendly book about the law school. So the guidebook with the stories about with the, the stories students. about the students. Because yeah. I I know enough about the law school to know they had some very colorful characters in addition to the historic ones. Yeah, and and part of the color came from the relationship with another school in Litchfield, which well, is Litchfield Female Academy. See, Kathy, you are a natural. She has just transitioned into the discussion of one of the two exhibits that you're about to open, and that exhibit is about another school in Litchfield an County? Another school in Litchfield, in Litchfield um, run by Sarah Pierce between 1792 and 1833, so roughly the same years as the law school, known as either Sarah Pierce's Academy or the Litchfield Female Academy, and it was a, a girls' school which also educated some boys, but that's another part of the story, but the, a school that drew students from all over the country 
13, 15 states and territories, Canada and the West Indies. So it was an education that girls were willing, or, and their parents were willing to pay for and have them travel to Litchfield. It is, you know, it's extraordinary at a, at a time when this idea of women's education in any form is just starting to really take hold in America. There are people in the 1790s, Benjamin Rush in Philadelphia and others who are advancing women's education, but the places for them to get it are few and far between. And here's this woman who decides, I'm gonna open a school. How did that happen? Well, she, um, she came from a, a rather large family in Litchfield and her older brother was essentially the head of the family. And he wanted to marry and needed a way to support his younger siblings. And so he sent Sarah to school in New York City. We haven't identified the school, but we're working on it to learn to be a teacher. So she went to New York, learned what she could learn and came back to Litchfield and opened the school with her sister, Mary. But Sarah was a little bit different the way women's education was focused in those days was the basics of reading and writing and maybe a little arithmetic. But the the academies turned out girls who could paint and sew and produce beautiful embroideries and learn how to sing and play the piano. And, and somehow this ornamental education was deemed as important or more important than an academic education. And what was the idea of calling it ornamental? Well, because you're, you're making pictures, they're ornaments. So they're things you can put, put up and wall. display. You actually, right. you literally are displaying your knowledge. So an embroidery could be like a diploma. Exactly, and and for parents, being able to put a very elaborate embroidery on the wall was proof that they were wealthy enough and cultured enough to send their daughter to school. So we we call them proofs of education. So this is this is these earliest schools concentrated on this ornamental stuff, which is sewing and what else? Sewing, very elaborate needlework pictures, watercolor painting, um, playing the piano, just the the arts essentially. You know, the, the I'm lucky. I've had a sneak preview of the exhibit, and some of the embroidery that are on the walls here. It, it's just astonishing. You can't believe that anyone could create some of these pieces of artistry. And then when you find out they're essentially young girls, yeah, it's just unbelievable. 14 years old, some of them. Yeah, yeah. But what, and they're fabulous, but what really makes this school different is that Sarah Pierce had this idea that women actually had a mind and that they could learn and be and successfully learn an academic curriculum as well as this ornamental curriculum she her education was limited to what what a woman's education was so she sent her nephew to Williams College to get a man's education and he came back and taught at the school and taught with her and so he was able to teach the girls here in Litchfield the same courses he took at Williams College. And she literally sent him so that he could come back yes. and be a kind of yes. missionary to these girls yes. to help them learn a, 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 man's, a man's education Right. at the same time. They're doing both, They're doing right? both, yeah. Uh, and so she also tr then tried to to put the two together. So when they were doing watercolors, sometimes they were maps or of birds or of plants so that they went along with lessons. The embroideries often illustrate um, stories from poems or literature or the Bible so that the, the academics supported, the, or the ornamental supported the, the academic education. 
in this exhibit, you've got examples, many of them, and beautiful ones of the ornamental education side by side with some of the examples of the kind of serious education. Right. And one of the things, one of the things I noticed in looking at, at, at these is there is a kind of deeply embedded religious and and moral tone they're they're intertwined but they're not exactly the same are we but that's 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 really embedded in this curriculum it was definitely it was it was a part of their lives in a way that it, it's not a part of our lives and so it was absolutely part of of what the school was teaching and and teaching teaching these young women to become responsible moral caring adults one of the kind of underlying themes in the early American Republic is that this is a noble but a fragile experiment. Right. And if this idea of democracy is going to re succeed, it'll be because the mothers of America teach, inculcate into their children morality, virtue, and the kind of responsibility citizens need right. to maintain the republic. Just Re like today, right? Re Republican motherhood. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, and and they and Sarah Pierce took that responsibility very, very seriously, and um, she spent a lot of time thinking, I think, and, and bringing the girls along in that way. So there were charitable and benevolent societies here in Litchfield. There was a school society where they learned how to do good works. And they also learned how to teach their children. We have lots of diary quotes from, or letters from the children of the, the students at the Female Academy who talked about how important the, the education was to their mothers and that they, you know, their mother was always reading to them in an evening or was always teaching. And so the work that Sarah Pierce did went on into the next generation as well. There, there were, this was a big surprise to me, there were men, men students at the Litchfield Female Academy, well, they right? Well, they were boys. They were, um, they were male, okay. <laughs> How old were they, do you know? The um, they were young, 10, 12, 14 years old. And I think would we, that be younger than the girls who were in attendance? It was generally? the same age as the youngest girls, but there were there were the girls went up into the 18s and 20s. So was this considered college prep for them? They do this and then go off to Williams or go to Harvard or Yale or something? Was it that was the, the beginning of college prep? They may have gone another step before they before yeah. they went to college, but it was apparently a better education than the local common schools, and. Um, We've identified, I think, at this point, 130 boys. Out of how many who attended her school? We don't know the exact number. I think we have 1,500 girls that we've identified. So the boys are almost 10% of what we know. But we don't have student lists for every year. So we're discovering new students all the time. You know, one of the, one of the fascinating things to think about Litchfield in this period is that it's got America's first law school with all of these, you know, soon to be high status, powerful political or legal or other figures in American society getting their education here in the same town as these women who are trained to be, right. you know, the model mothers of a, of a Republican nation. This must have been an incredibly influential community. I think it had to have been. And, and that's really what we're working on now, is trying to get out of Litchfield and find out what they did when they left and what, 
and how what happened here may have influenced them. That's per particularly with the law school, it's a little bit easier because we can trace, it's a lot easier, believe it or not, to trace a man's career than it is a woman's. Yeah. So, um, so sometimes we can find out about the women through their husbands or their fathers, but, but, we're, but we're starting to get there. We're working actually really closely with Yale Law School who have digitized all of the law student notebooks from our collection and from their collection. And the, these are the notebooks. The students wrote their, wrote their lectures out, bound them, and then used, used these books. And they're doing an analysis, working on an analysis of what, what was actually taught. And then if there's any PhD students out there, what we'd really like to then know is how what they were taught here may have translated into what they did when they were there in Congress. There you go. And that's, that's really, that's the big story. You know, and just, just looking at the curricula superficially, it's very clear that this is that that a kind of basic new Americanism is being taught here, inculcated, and yeah. and sent out into the world. But you've got you've got you know ambitious young men and intelligent young women living together in the same town. Now there, I I didn't see any 19th century dormitories as I was coming in. Where did all these people live? So students at both schools lived with families in, in Litchfield. It was called the family boarding system. And um, we have wonderful letters from both law students and female academy students where they talk about their boarding situations. Are they living, is it co-educational dormitories? Sort of. Um, some of the houses um, brought in, or both boys, young men at the law school and young women from the female academy are living in the same house. but. A, couple of them have written letters where they talked about the girls complained because the boys got the better bedrooms because their education was more important and the girls were um, shoved up in the attic. But the girls also had to follow the rules of the school and the there's 15 or 16 depending on what year rules and the, the first 10 of them had to do with your behavior and the family that you were living with. Well, and it's wonderful. You have those rules actually posted. Yeah. On, uh, as part of the exhibit, and it's um, so you can see a little bit about that. But there was also I call it living in a Jane Austen novel, because <laughs> there were there were marriages and there were romances and there were people throwing somebody over and there were misunderstandings and there was cattiness of girls behind the scenes and there were boys trying to trying to get together with different girls and it, it's all. It actually it, sounds like what goes on at my university and all universities started right? here in Litchfield. There you you go. But it's I all... doubt that, Kathy. No <laughs> offense, but I doubt that. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, you can take the story in so many different ways. You can... Well, the, you can, and you have, you know, what is wonderful about this exhibit is that a story that sounds good when you tell it gets fleshed out with objects and, uh, 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 stories by the girl and the girls and the works that they did, it really comes to life when you see it. I think you've Thank done you. a wonderful job with Thank this you. exhibit, and you can't you can't come out of it without admiring the kind of education that went on here. It was it was it was it was it was real. 
Yeah. It was, it was a serious education for many young women who were serious about their education. There, there's one letter um, where a student talks about two girls who from Charleston who came and sewed a picture and went home because they said they'd finished their education. And wow. she was laughing at them, you know, like this is, this is not really what it is. But so they were, they were from that old model right, of ornamental right, education only. Right. And so they had their pictures and they, and they went home and that was not what the school was about. And in fact, someone we've all heard of was one of the students at the school and that was Harriet Beecher. Who became, who became Harriet, Harriet Beecher, Beecher Stowe, Stowe. right. Because her father was the minister here in town. So Harriet and Catherine and actually- Catherine is her sister, sister. and Catherine, who attended here, who, who got her own education here, then went on to do what? She founded the Hartford Female Seminary in Hartford, and actually John Pierce Brace, Sarah Pierce's nephew, who taught here, went to Hartford with Catherine and was the principal of the Hartford Female Seminary. So it, it is, it's uh, by implication anyway, the Hartford Female Seminary was in some ways an extension yes. of Sarah Pierce's Female Academy Definitely here. influenced by it. That's wonderful. And Catherine Beecher then went on to be uh, extraordinary influential in women's education in the 19th century across yeah. America. She's, yeah. she, is, she is remembered in ways that Sarah Pierce hasn't been, but right. I think, you yeah. know. So we were talking earlier that the this, this sort of second generation of schools are the schools that lasted and that are well known, and this is a first generation, but we're, get, we're getting the word out there. So like America's first law school, this it. is one of the first anyway. Can't say it's the female first, academies. but it's one of the first. <laughs> so you have, it's a wonderful exhibit. And if you want a taste of this, it, it can't, it, it can only give you a flavor. It can whet your appetite and make you want to get in the car and drive out to Litchfield and come see this exhibit. But if you go to the Litchfield Historical Society's website and just look at the information they have on the female academy, on this school, and just look at some of the girls, study some of the stories that they have, I guarantee you this will become a must-visit site while this exhibit is up. And it's going to be up Thank how you. long? It's actually up for two years. And over the course of the two years, we'll, we'll swap some of the artwork out so there'll be different things to see over, over the course Excellent. of the time. Excellent. Now, that's only one of two exhibits and, and that you're opening. And, the, and the, the Female Academy is, I think, in many ways, incredibly optimistic because it tells a... It tells a, a tells a wonderful but in some ways sobering story about possibilities for women in the early republic. But then this second exhibit <laughs> is not quite as happy, is it? No. Um, and this is an exhibit on mourning, M-O-U-R-N-ing, in the early 19th century. And it ties directly to the Female Academy exhibit because one of the types of artwork that the girls at the Female Academy would make were either um, embroideries or paintings that were called mourning pictures and they um, are depict tombstones and mourners and are um, in memory of generally some family member or close friend who passed away. And this is a very common art form in the first half of the 19th century, right? Yeah, it, it started really when George Washington died and, and the, the entire country mourned him. And so there was mourning to George Washington and it sort of built 
on that. And this was a time when when you know, death was really an everyday occurrence. It was really part of one's life. And so you dealt with it maybe in a different way than, than we do today. And so visible mourning was very important. And you have them. you have actually some interesting pottery that was created to commemorate the death and apotheosis of Washington is, you know, being carried up to heaven in the arms of angels. And you can see looking at these these uh, pottery vessels, actually, and images, you can absolutely see how this creates a model mm -hmm. that very quickly is translated into personal and family expressions yes. of mourning. It turned right over once it, once it started into into mourning mourning your your family. Now, were these were these mourning pictures part of the curriculum at the school? Do you know if that was? Is, it, they were part of the of the ornamental curriculums because there were teachers at the school who taught um, who taught art. So there wasn't a, a really, as far as we know, they weren't part of a, a religion class or any class that was particular about mourning. But we do know that there, we know, of, I don't know, maybe a dozen or more pictures that were done over the course of time. Well, in the, school. in the exhibit, it's really striking because you see how there are certain images that are really kind of the iconic images of this version of mourning, and they're, they appear in different versions over time, but they're very striking. It's willow trees and water and urns and women with handkerchiefs in front of their faces and men in black, and, and they, have a, a, they all share something of the same elements. And wh what was... What was striking to me is that these embroidered pieces would on the tombstones, just the way, you know, a girl might do with a sampler that she had worked on. Mm -hmm. They embroider in the names, you know, not just of people who have died recently, but of family members who have died 20, 30, 40 years ago on yeah, these so stones. It's a, it's a way to remember your family. And, and they, I would assume they, they were in parlors and they were... Same as, same as the more ornamental pictures they would hang in the house and so um, it, were, were part of the, the decorative scheme. And it is, it is um, when you see this exhibit, it's really, it, it, it draws you back for a moment and then it pulls you in okay. because it, we're, we're, I think in America, we are not often confronted with the presence of death and mourning, you know, in a museum the way this is being done, which is quite good. But then when you see them and you start to see the similarities and differences, then it's, you know, it really does become a magnet. Yeah, it was definitely a, a cultural norm. There's nothing like this in our contemporary experience, is there? This is really, this is a way of treating mourning that we're unfamiliar with. Sort of, but not really. I think um, this was this, these morning pictures were done because death was so prevalent within a community, and it was a way to visibly remember your friends and your family. And I, I often think about the 1980s and the early 90s and the AIDS quilt, oh. where in that community death was very prevalent, and and people needed a way to, to oh, commemorate and remember yeah. their friends. And so they would, people made squares of a quilt that is remarkable. I, and it was the same kind of visible mourning. And you can also even think about roadside memorials 
where people You're right. want to continue to remember the site of someone's death, which you know is a little macabre, but when you see them, but but it's the same urge to to keep someone in your mind well, in some way. And, you know, when you lose people you love, it's hard to believe they're really gone, and yeah. you don't want them to be gone. Right. So these are these so are ways pe to do People it. mourn in different ways. There's one mourn other kind of side element in this mourning thing that also you see a lot of, and it's representations of human hair, right? Yes. So hair jewelry and hair in lockets and hair in behind a behind a miniature portrait was a, a really tangible way of remembering someone who had who had been deceased, a, a close friend or a family member, or as Walt pointed out from something he's seen and read, just to remember a friend who's gone away. Not died, but moved to the Western Reserve or to, to somewhere else. It was a tangible way to remember. Yeah, I, I, I confess that I used to think, you know, I had seen these locks of hair and frames and things at various museums and I always found them a little bit creepy <laughs> but last summer I was studying people who left Connecticut and went out to you know out west to various places and I came across some letters and one of them was from a woman who was now living in New York who, who had missed a friend from back east and she wrote to her in the letter it was clear they were extremely close and she said I don't know if I'll ever see you again, but when I miss you, I take the lock of hair that you gave me, yeah. and you're with me. And that was so yeah. powerful, an expression of both the contingency of when someone leaves a place, they may or may not ever see them, but the power of that material manifestation of that person to represent yeah. them. I, I think that sometimes it's hard for us because everything is... So, communication is so easy and, and, and we never really lose sight of people to understand the, the importance of the artifact. We may lose sight of people, but Facebook never, never lose sight of people. Facebook yeah. will never lose sight. Yeah. But it, they, it was a much more real thing to them to be able to, to, to the same way miniature portraits. Yeah. We have many, many, many miniatures in our collection. Many of them are students at the law school or the female academy, and they were often painted when when people parted so that you could, it was like having a photograph of your loved one. A miniature was something that could travel with you, and, yeah. and that was it. That was might be the last, the only image you have of that person for the rest of your life. In our in our totally image saturated world, I think it's sometimes hard for us to appreciate the absolute importance of yeah. the the few but powerful images that people had back yeah. then. It's yeah. it, and this exhibit does that. It, it is and there's some believe it or not there's there there are parts of this exhibit on morning that are playful and you, <laughs> you, you can come to them. I. I am I am impressed that you. We have an interactive activity. Yeah, it it, it is it's it's you know in a way it's kind of bold to do a, do an exhibit like this and I applaud you for that but it's really it's wonderful the two exhibits together they um, they're in they, they certainly are in dialogue with each other it's nice but they're they are different and mm -hmm. complementary and you couldn't make for a better afternoon visit. I think, than to come to Litchfield. Now, for people who don't know Litchfield, uh, 
let's finish up by by saying okay you're going to come to the museum you're going to have so much that's been so exciting you are you you just you're bursting to talk about it you're in Litchfield you've never been before where are the places people can go when they leave the museum oh there's a lot to do in Litchfield there's the White Memorial Foundation which is a 4,000 acre nature preserve in town that has hiking and walking trails and uh, Bantam Lake uh, so that's wonderful. There's some great restaurants. It's a there's a small commercial block in town, but there's four or five restaurants that are fabulous. Um, there's oh, let's see, Tops Mead, which is um, Edith Chase's house. It's a state park. is right next door. There are um, there's the Livingston Ripley Waterfowl Conservancy, which is a um, they raise uh, endangered ducks and waterfowl, and that's open to the public in the summer. And you can see some some animals you'd never get a chance to see anywhere else in the world. So there's it's an interesting town. There's lots to do. And every single one of those places is a better experience if you visit it after visiting oh, yes, the Litchfield Historical first. Society. And then tell everybody about it, Kathy. It's been a wonderful morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing this. And if you're listening to this, put it on your calendar. Get out here this year. See this exhibit. It's awesome. And I can't thank Walt enough for coming. And I, but I also want to thank my staff here who put this exhibit together. I'm just talking about it, but they did all the hard work. So please come and enjoy it. It is very clear. A lot of work went into making a great exhibit. Thank you. Was, this was fun. It was. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Kathy Fields, Linda Arnold, and the Litchfield Historical Society. Hear all our Connecticut history podcasts by subscribing to Grading the Nutmeg on iTunes, Google Play, or at gradingthenutmeg.libsign.com. And please leave us a review so we'll know how we're doing. For more great Connecticut history stories, read or subscribe to the magazine at connecticutexplored.org. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their actions. More at bowman.legal. I'm Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.